0: Welcome to On The Clock, episode
1: four. Hi, welcome. Happy, I guess May still. I'm not saying happy May Day. It was already May Day, but happy May.
0: We took a week off break to celebrate the tradition of um, shirking work on May Day by doing it late and just not releasing a podcast for a week. But we're back now.
1: We are back. We're done being lazy, good for nothing, people who will not... You know, just pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Honestly, I think it was just in the, us all along.
0: Yeah, it's you. The listeners have given us too much uh, welfare already. We've we've become some kind of podcasting welfare royalty, that now we can't bring ourselves <laughs> to work at all anymore.
1: <laughs> so we are back, um, and we have some topics to t- discuss in true. I guess on-the-clock fashion, we, we don't have um, a little noise that lets us know when our topics start, which we should probably invest in some sort of audio for that. Maybe I'll add it in here. But yeah, Tom, you got to start with the, the tomer, which is the timer, but Tom's timer.
0: Okay, so we're going to edit in the start noise in three, two... <laughs> One. Okay, so here we have uh, Professor Meg, PhD, Doctorate of, um smartness. Uh, gonna give her famous talk have no PhD. on uh, capitalism is an influence in rom-coms. Um, that's not she has a, she has a super PhD. It's a new thing that they they invented just for her.
1: That's a lie. I have a bachelor's degree and have uh, had a vain attempt to get into a master's program. So clearly, I'm not an authority on anything, but uh, I do have some topics that I like to write about for literally no one but myself. Oh, so the first one, or at least the one that i I'm gonna talk about today, it's based off this article that I'm writing. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to actually send it out to get published anywhere. But um, it's basically talking about capitalism in romantic comedies, uh, <laughs> which I have assorted history with. Um, I grew up watching like Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan style romantic comedies, pretty like with like pretty lofty ideas of what romance essentially was. I wouldn't say that I was like a super romantic person. It was more of like Oh, romance exists in this bubble of movies and television, and I'll just keep it at that. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks can deal with that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, which is, we actually changed our names uh, to Tom and Meg Mm -hmm. based on Tom Hanks and and Meg Ryan. That's not a coincidence.
1: Clearly. (laughs) Um, So the way that I saw romance was based off of, like, a Nora Ephraim story. So, like, Sleepless in Seattle or you've got mail, things like that. Now that I'm older and a lot more cynical (laughs) and a socialist, I like to think about love. (laughs) I am a commie. (laughs) I uh, like to think about love in a different sense when you see it on television or in movies, in media in general. Because the way that it is depicted is for a sort of gain, as you might already know. You probably already know. (laughs) But capitalism factors into romance and love portrayed in the media. When you kind of look back at those movies like Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, and I might be, God, I'm not even old enough to be within the realm of when those movies came out. I just like watching older romantic comedies, I guess. Uh, they're from generally just like the 90s, mid to late 90s. And I mean, I was born in 1995, but I was not going to the movie theaters seeing a Tom Hanks movie in 1995. If, if you have an idea of any other kind of romantic comedies, um, if you think of, I guess, postmodern romantic comedies, you've got, <laughs> you've got a difference uh, between the golden era, which I would say is, the um, the mid-90s form of romantic comedies when the genre kind of... I wouldn't say it starts because I say the romantic comedies kind of start in the uh, mid to late 40s um, with movies like Bringing Up Baby with Katharine Hepburn and, and Cary Grant, but that's a whole other spiel that you probably also don't know. <laughs> um, I'm just bringing in the deep lore. Basically, in essence, um, the modern romance... Kind of is within the lines of like the 27 dresses style or um, he's just not that into you. The ugly truth, that is another one. And um, those are all kind of like Catherine Heigl style. We have like our romance girl, generally speaking, in the romance field
0: uh-huh, uh-huh. Um,
1: where we had originally it was like a Meg Ryan. Um, then we drifted into the Katherine Heigl era. And now we are in the postmodern romance era, in which we have a lot more than just white blonde ladies. Usually,
0: truly, (laughs) wonders never (laughs) cease.
1: I mean, I'm trying to think of who could be depicted as like that kind of caricature for um, the postmodern era, and I would say the closest I can think of is like Amy Schumer, maybe, and. I don't like Amy Schumer, but I also don't like Katherine Heigl. So, I mean, I mean nothing against them. I don't know them.
0: <laughs> well, I don't want to, like, give the but game saying, away, if- but um, I know you were going to talk <laughs> about a certain kind of deconstruction of these romantic comedy tropes later in this session.
1: Yes, Tom. I'm getting there. I told you. This is like me decompressing thoughts that I've had stirring about for, like, months.
0: Okay, well, um, we are on so the clock. So, Postmodern
1: Movies you've, you've been
0: decompressing for six and a half minutes. Maybe it's time to get to the subject, Meg. Come on. It's the whole podcast that we do.
1: All right. <laughs> okay. So, this man has told me that I need to hurry up and talk about my female topic so that we can go on and talk about his. Basically, um, I'm talking about how neoliberalism... That's right. I'm getting in there.
0: <laughs> neoliberalism. I'm talking about how neoliberalism
1: neoliberalism basically covers um a lot of what uh romantic comedies portray and you can see that within the media in general because it's neoliberal dominated but within this kind of capitalist mindset you can kind of see how these old ideologies of female i guess female lead tropes and tropes that you could kind of associate with romantic comedies so like if you think about any kind of these romantic comedies, like you have the, the female lead who is usually either like a journalist or like an assistant or, you know, something that is not necessarily seen in the, the highest grade. their prototypical female jobs, quote unquote. And so when you see that, it kind of denotes this sort of stereotype of the character in general of, like, what we're supposed to see for their career aspirations, which occasionally you don't even see. (laughs) Like, for the entirety of Sleepless in Seattle, you see, like, Meg Ryan, who's writing an article based off of this dude that she's, like, really into. (laughs) Like, her entire (laughs) career path is focusing on Writing something about this man that she's interested in, so a lot of the career goals, quote unquote, are driven by male interests or driven by uh, the desire to get that romantic love. Um, so we see that in modern and postmodern, um, less in postmodern, um, but we see that in more of the modern romances as well, um, mainly like as an assistant or if there's some sort of rivalry between women um in the workplace you see the hashtag girl boss kind of trope playing its role so that's like the career segment if you're thinking about like the segmented um like beauty aspect that's a whole other ball game of like how capitalism basically undermines women's beauty to try to say hey if you want to if you want to be attractive if you want to attract uh, a mate Then you need to be beautiful, you need to go through some sort of change to get there, you need to be better looking than this person, you need to have a sassy black friend or a gay friend to tell you how to dress, and it's just absolutely awful. So basically you see this sort of shift from the the tropes of career dominated by male goals to um the the modern era to postmodern era which references more hashtag girl boss and like female rivalry that has usually some sort of like embedded sexual tension um but they don't really want to talk about that because no homo um but whatever and uh another thing that uh capitalism kind of portrays and I'm, gonna, I'm kind of getting off track because, like I said, this is sort of a, a deconstructing of this idea, I guess. Um, a lot of the tropes that we see within romantic comedies are capitalist driven because they are marketed for a specific group of people, namely older white women. So throughout, throughout time, that marketing agenda hasn't necessarily changed. I would say that more in the postmodern era, we have uh, a like a likelihood of it being a younger audience as well. Um, we can see kind of in movies like Mamma Mia, which is, I would say, a postmodern romantic comedy mixed in with the musical genre, and I absolutely love it. I'm part of that bandwagon. I'm with the Wine Moms. I'm sorry. <laughs> that is my trash. I stand by my trash, but like... It's it's this amalgamation of all of these different tropes but they're portrayed so silly that it's just it's very funny in a postmodern kind of movie where you would you would see younger audiences as well as older audiences finding it very enjoyable like I would I would go see this movie with my friend's mom like we would sing along to the movies together She's, like, this older German lady who just absolutely adores Mamma Mia, and I'm, like, right there with her. So, I mean, just, like, having this kind of generational bridge to kind of mend over is really interesting in this postmodern era of it. However, that being said, we are also marketing to a more wider variety of people because it's pandering. You see it in a lot of romantic comedies with... um either homosexual-based or, like, LGBTQ, although it's usually, uh, strictly speaking, gay or lesbian characters within the the narrative. Um, They don't really branch out into a lot of other kind of aspects. Like, I don't see any non-binary characters within, like, the majority of, like, mainstream romantic comedies. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, at least like explicitly stating that there are implicit characters with that kind of concept. But as far as like explicitly explicitly marketing to that kind of group, I don't see it. So when you kind of see how these characteristics, these um, these cultural groups that are other generally being marketed to, it's more in the pandering sense because they want their money. Capitalism regards films and television in the same way they regard Like consumerist mindsets like you are supposed to buy their product so if they can reach a broader audience, they will do so. And I think there are some people who appreciate the fact that they can see an all black-led cast of of actors just doing a romantic comedy and sometimes not having it just be a Tyler Perry movie, Um, which I mean, no no shade to Tyler Perry, I guess. But, I mean, that's literally the only time I see a directed approach at an all-Black mainstream, like, cast of characters. So, just that being said, I mean, I'm a I'm a young white lady. I don't really know, I guess. <laughs> but that being said, like, I can see people wanting something like that out in the media. And, of course, it's needed. Like, Crazy Rich Asians has... Um, an all Asian cast of really funny characters but also like there's some stereotypes embedded in there because this kind of story is based around a consumerist model. They want people to see the glamorous life of these rich Asian people so you can kind of I guess think you're cultured for watching it um, and pander to that audience. Meanwhile, there's certain problematic elements in lead with that story, but that's not their, that's not their goal. Their goal is to get the capitalist model appeased by, you know, marketing to that group. Now there's certain elements of these tropes and um, these consumerist models that we see deconstructed in movies nowadays. Um, we see it in a lot of different genres. I would say you, uh, an example of that for romantic comedies would be Isn't It Romantic with Rebel Wilson. It has a great many flaws. Um, I know not, not a lot of people stand Rebel Wilson, especially in this post-Cats time. But, you know.
0: I don't know what you're talking about. I, I stand all the stars of Cats. They made a great choice by starring in this movie. <laughs> Best one of the best movie experiences I had of, of twenty late twenty nineteen before the the times.
1: Yes. So I get it. I get it if you don't like Rebel Wilson. That's fine. I don't I don't care. <laughs> I like Rebel Wilson. Um as as a big girl, seeing another big girl out there being represented in a, a romantic movie and somebody who is, you know, being sought after by male characters. Even if there are still the the moments of slapstick fat girl comedy. (laughs) Uh, um, you know, I still I still like it. The fact that they they kind of delve into the the idea of like the gay best friend as a character model that is just is it's completely just a vast void of emptiness in a lot of different romantic comedies. It doesn't get extrapolated on. It doesn't get Like, it's just a caricature of a gay person, and it's pretty fucked up, (laughs) and, like, they barely get any character. They're just kind of hosting their life based around the main character of this romantic comedy, and that gets extrapolated on in Isn't It Romantic, where we have this um, gay best friend archetype who is just, you know, he's doing it in such an overly zealous way. Oh God, I wish I remembered the actor's name who played him because he's wonderful. He's really fun name. Yeah,
0: I don't know. Um But the the contrast between like the fantasy version of him and the real version of him is hilarious every time.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really great. Because if you haven't seen Isn't It Romantic, uh Rebel Wilson gets uh mugged in the subway, hits her head, and she wakes up in a fairy tale world of romantic comedy where she's like basically the star of a romantic comedy and has all the tropes that are in love with that and she has her neighbor who who is her neighbor in like her real reality (laughs) um is like her new gay best friend and she just lives this fabulous life or whatever and obviously shit well within this model you can see a lot of capitalist mindset in there um, and I'm just gonna, I'm breaking the rules, I'm sorry. I'm just gonna read this quote by uh, Lori Essick, who is a gender studies lecturer for Middlebury College. Um, she did a lecture at uh, St. Petersburg College um, on Love Inc., the strange marriage of romance and Neoliberalism capri- capitalism. So she says, we learn to be romantic in the same way we learn to practice a particular religion. Since romance is primarily a set of practices, Day after day, popular culture produces cliches in the form of romantic comedies, love ballads and women's novels showing consumers of cultural production a similar stream of behavioral patterns. So basically just saying that the way we learn about love is through these romantic comedies and their ideologies form in our minds um, as to what and who we should expect from a loving relationship. Um, So kind of just showing you that like The capitalism um, and the model, the consumerist model that we see within romantic comedies, affects our general lives as it does in all different senses. And now, my carry-on spiel is done. Tom, you're welcome.
0: All right, I'm. I'm letting. I'm gonna let you break the rules. Our rules, because uh, I get to hold it over you and gloat because you got mad that I rushed you.
1: You did rush me. It was mean.
0: What? You ran out of time. You needed rushing. You needed more rushing, if anything.
1: I, you, I ran out of time because I was anxious because you rushed me. I kept thinking I was running <laughs> out of time.
0: And yet you... St- I just want to help you hit your points, baby.
1: We've been in quarantine and stuck with each other for two months.
0: For real? Two.
1: So just think about that.
0: <laughs> We're clearly going insane, as you can see. Related to quarantine... Uh, In recent Wisconsin news, I know is um, definitely the favorite part of the podcast for our listeners, who I'm certain none of them live in Wisconsin.
1: Maybe. Uh, I don't know.
0: Anyway, uh, in recent news, the government shutdown mandate has been prematurely lifted. Uh, Basically, the governor... Initially had plans to have the lockdown extend until the end of the month, May 26th. The conservative majority Supreme Court stepped in and uh, overturned the order. So Wisconsin is now a state with no lockdown. Yep. It's actually it gets even worse when you look at the details of this situation. So essentially, this this went to this Wisconsin Supreme Court. Um, The Republican legislature was was pushing them to block the order of the executive branch and force them to craft new rules in conjunction with the legislature over, like, the next couple weeks. They asked the court to pause their decision for six days so that the two branches could work together and put out a replacement order. Um, But these, like, four conservative shitheads sitting on our Supreme Court went overzealous, they went even further. They just abruptly overturned it with no delay and no replacement order that was worked out between the two branches. So even like our Republican state legislature didn't want this, the Supreme Court went ahead and overturned it without any replacement in mind at all for the, the rules of lockdown. And now it's just fucking... Open season. It's Lord of the Flies over here, folks.
1: Yeah, we're. I mean, obviously, in the in the past, like couple of days that this order has been carried out, um, we've still seen people like out with uh, masks on, and people still abiding by the the guidelines that were heretofore ordained. Um, but. Just just thinking about how soon people are going to forego that, even like just because of the fact that, you know, this lockdown has been lifted. It's just going to get a lot, a lot more unsafe.
0: Yeah. And this kind of this highlights like this, this left versus right conflict that has been going on in Wisconsin for some time now. Um, On earlier podcasts, we talked about. Uh, you may remember the state Supreme Court from our first episode where we talked about how they struck down uh, the governor's order to delay the elections, uh, forcing those to go through in the COVID pandemic when like, election judges stayed home, volunteers stayed home, and everyone... There was like one single polling place open in all of Milwaukee and people had to vote like through that. The, the reason they did that was to... I guess, boost the Daniel Kelly campaign, who is one of the Supreme Court judges who's up for election. I don't know if you know this or if this is the same way in other states, but in Wisconsin, uh, Supreme Court judges have terms of 10 years and they have to stand for election every 10 years. Uh, But it didn't work. Perhaps, obviously, that if you make people go out to vote in a pandemic, uh, they don't fucking like you. You know, when they have to stand in line for hours risking a deadly illness. So, Daniel Kelly got ultimately destroyed in the vote by a wide yep. margin.
1: People actually value their safety.
0: The new judge is set to take office on August 1st. So, unfortunately, we have Kelly to thank for this uh, lockdown overturning. Which, I mean, it, it does... We've I've heard from friends talking about this. It does kind of seem like an act of spite. Like he's just bitter that he lost, and his him and his uh, Republican colleagues are doing this to just like spite the public that is clearly doesn't want them in office anymore, which is kind of a trend now. It's this is the second time in very short succession that the Supreme Court has directly targeted the executive branch's orders, turning them down after Wisconsin has like voted this Democratic governor and voted largely Democratic in this primary election getting this Democratic judge in uh, these Republican legislators and Republican appointed judges uh, Daniel Kelly himself being appointed by the previous governor Scott Walker it seems like they're kind of lashing out at the the sort of Democrats in the state trying to like actively trying to strip the power of the Democratic governor and attempting to really, stymie any attempts to get any progress in the state it's really
1: it's gross and i mean we've we've talked about the the political agenda behind this pandemic both on executive um state like just like a bunch of different levels uh but it's just it's still astounding that we have to discuss how because of the political agenda and the the spite of these politicians there are people who are put in more danger and there are people who are wondering how they're going to you know get paid or be able to feed their kids or wonder if they're still going to have a job because as if the lockdown has been lifted you know that companies are going to be telling their employees to come in they're yep. not going to provide any provisions for them to help them and they're not going to tolerate sick leave the same way so Oh yeah. If you think about it, there are going to be more people losing their jobs and more people who are going to be forced into working. I mean like fucking look at Elon Musk who ignored the order, like and got I think he got sued. He's probably going to get out of it, but
0: oh yeah, billionaires walk scot free. That's the one consistent American policy. And yeah, that you really hit the nail on the fucking head. Um, like we said, we mentioned earlier in another podcast that these lockdown protesters are like blocking hospitals because they don't want the lockdown to go on. They targeted specifically Wisconsin, Michigan, states with like Democratic governors who are contested population.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah, this, the end, of, the end of this lockdown is like specifically going to target workers and, even small businesses to a degree like people are saying oh small businesses they can't survive on uh, this program which is true but like only because these large businesses took up a lot of that aid and also what about like the people who actually work at these small businesses like people are now being forced to go into work under unsafe conditions and if they stay at home for their own health they're going to get fired and even aside from that they can't complain. They can't even claim unemployment if they do get fired, because um, to be able to claim unemployment, you have to prove that you're actively like looking for work and going to like job interviews, which you can't do while you're isolating. And coronavirus relief, like the Illinois bill, made exceptions like for people who are self-isolating due to coronavirus. Um, but if the lockdown is lifted, then like, they're going to ignore all those, those provisions. Aren't
1: in place anymore.
0: Yeah, this is... They're they're basically getting... Like, people are going to have to choose between their health and their job. And they're going to strip away unemployment for anyone who is um, isolating due to COVID.
1: So, this is shit. And I am absolutely furious at the fucking state just...
0: Yeah, the state of this state.
1: Honestly. The state of this state. Just... And and in general, we've seen, I mean, I'm sure all of you know how absolutely horribly this situation has been mismanaged, but to continue on this way on a state level is like on lower levels, having this mismanaged in like Georgia, um, in Wisconsin and all of these states that are basically not taking it as seriously as they should is really affecting people even more so. Because if you think about it, these are the levels in which you're getting your um, your specific like daily lives affected. And the more that we see this, the more that we see lockdowns lifted and um, these kind of stipulations not being taken seriously, the more we're going to see actual American lives getting just devastated, more so than we already have like lifting the lockdown is going to be one of the greater instances in this pandemic that will make or break whether or not we're going to get another hit.
0: Yeah, and it's like it's absolutely going to extend the lockdown. It's going to create a second wave of cases that are going to de- like create more lockdowns. They're just extending this like for like petty political gain and Not paying people unemployment, not taking care of the sick and people who can't work due to this. It's, like, fucking dystopian. And it's even more disgusting how they, like, justify all this. Like, we're already seeing a spike in cases from the fucking primary ruling here in Wisconsin. And then these fucking conservatives have the gall to, like, make this about, oh, it's about individual liberty. You can't tell businesses not to close down. You can't tell businesses not to open and force them to close down. But, like, no one thinks about the workers who have to make the choice between them and their family's health or just don't get paid, starve in your homes, isolating.
1: Yeah, it's just that if if you didn't understand how, like, absolute the disregard for human life is from corporations and this capitalist fucking country already... This kind of situation has been opening people's eyes, and I really hope that that actually comes into fruition, fruition because if there's any time to protest, it's now. Yeah. If there's any time to take direct action, it's it's now. Like, if you're in Wisconsin, if you're a worker in Wisconsin, fuck it. I I will basically tell you, if you want to protest, if you want to not come into work, there are tools to help you... Figure out how to do that. Um, you know, the IWW um has a lot of guidelines on how you can safely protest, especially during times like these. There's um Gen Strike, which we've already talked about, but just like if you feel unsafe and you cannot come into work and you have the ability to strike, I know it seems especially since what we've talked about, like the fact that people are losing their jobs for not coming in. I know that it can be really scary to think about, but direct action in times like these really come into fruition. I, I think they can. Yeah. This seems like
0: it's times of crisis when, like when essential workers are so needed and it's so clear that like, like we need the the working class now more than ever like this is when these kind of actions become the most effective
1: because if we're if we're really that essential why weren't we in the first place you know what i mean if if i am an essential worker at my workplace why am i not getting the benefits needed for it, a crisis like this yeah. why why didn't i get them beforehand
0: where's the hazard why, pay
1: where's the hazard pay why were, why were people, you know, told they need to come in unless they tested positive? Like, it, it's little things like these that build up in your mind and you understand how corrupt these corporations are and how much they really need you. You know, I, I, I'm just, I'm so upset at Wisconsin for this. I just want to like, yeah. and I feel like we talk about this kind of dread a lot but it's just it's important to know and it's important to know that you have the ability to take action yeah. with this kind of news like we're not telling you this to be like oh, this is sad this is depressing and even more depressing times i mean obviously it hits hard and it hits a lot of people it, it hits a lot of people harder than it's hitting us right now because we are we are privileged enough to be able to work from home But, you know, there are a lot of people who are out there right now working who are not getting hazard pay. And there are people who are out there who are suffering on unemployment right now or they can't even get in touch with unemployment. And we just want you to know that knowing all of this can help you become an active participant in changing this.
0: Yep. There's a lot of things you can do on a personal level. Um, There's another thing I would suggest since we we just had our... Um, I talked about the recall last episode Maybe it's just me thinking electorally Because of all the election Crap going on You know I really don't want to like Disparage my anarchist cred by <laughs> Advocating for electoral politics Or anything but We can recall these horrible Horrible fucking right judges sorry. Who have just ordered Millions of people out into the public To catch COVID Like in case you need any more reasons um daniel kelly is out his colleagues rebecca Grassel bradley who is also a scott walker appointee argued for overturning the lockdown com- and in a fucking brazen incredible act of hyperbole compared this authoritarian power to the Korematsu case Uh, the Supreme Court decision that upheld Japanese internment during World War II. Right?
1: Holy shit. Right? I did not know that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, goes without saying that she also ordered the election to go forward. It's it's, it's so bad that our Supreme Court has seven people. There are five Republicans and two Democrats. And this decision was so bad that even one of the Republicans on the court couldn't go forward with it. And it went forward 4-3. Which means, by the way, that if this motherfucker who we voted out on their stupid, bloody, like, disease primary had been out of office, this vote wouldn't have passed. So, fuck, like, ugh. Even when electoral politics sees progress, it doesn't see progress. It's, ah. Anyway, yeah, I we should recall all these stupid motherfuckers who voted for this bullshit. It's just, like... This legacy of a Republican government That gerrymanders the state And like Wisconsin is so fucking weird politically Like there's They vote they voted blue they in presidential are. elections Until the Trump campaign Which I mean probably is partially The fault of Hillary Clinton For not even setting foot in the state During the campaign But still they've reliably voted For Democratic presidents before that But also The state at the state level it was consistently Republican for like a while.
1: It's one of the swing states, or at least it has been, but not always. Like it's just
0: its status as a swing state is incredibly recent, just since the presidential election, basically.
1: Yeah. Like it's just it's mm, Wisconsin's weird.
0: Weird shit.
1: Like we love we love this place. We really do.
0: But the leadership, man.
1: Hodags. Hodags should just take over the government. Yes,
0: Hodags, come sweeping from the north. Skewer everyone. Cut them to pieces with your razor-white claws.
1: No one knows who the Hodag is. Look it up. This is a very Wisconsin thing. It's the
0: state cryptid. Look it up. They're great. (laughs) Hello. Hey, welcome to uh, the Shoutout Zone.
1: Yeah, we're here to talk about advertisements that we are not paid for, but we really like, and you should check them out.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that I included this segment so that we could include ads that we will definitely never get, Yeah. because <laughs> now we just use them to shout out projects that we actually like and think are good.
1: Yeah, pretty much. One of those projects, which um, is, I don't know if it's like a side project, but um, Means TV, If you've heard of them, um, some of you might have heard of them, they're a TV collective. So they're a streaming service collective um, where you can watch content uh, oriented around leftist media, things that we like. Um, You can also find uh, leftist content from, like, YouTubers. So you could find, like, Mexi from the Vegan Vanguard or... You could find Thought Slime, uh, who's also scaredy cats. I absolutely adore so much. Uh, you can watch all of his content there as well. There's a, a gaming um, sub-portion of Means TV that has just released on May 5th. Uh, Tonight We Riot, which is a, a video game. Is video game time.
0: It's a videos game.
1: Yeah, it's, on, it's available on the Switch, and I believe PC.
0: I thought it was just Switch that you could play it on.
1: No, you should be able to play it on the PC as well.
0: Oh, wow, okay. Um. Great. Even more avenues for you to experience tonight we riot.
1: It's available on Steam, and it's on the Switch, which we have it on the Switch. And it's really fucking fun. It's really hard. We're so bad at it.
0: <laughs> We're pretty bad. It's, it's a fun ride, but... Boy, we are not good drivers.
1: Yeah, um, I'll read just like to kind of like encapsulate it better than we can. This is their uh, promo on the uh, the Switch site or Nintendo site. Um, so in a dystopia where wealthy capitalists control elections, media, and the lives of working people, we're faced with two choices: accept it or fight for something better. Tonight we riot doesn't have just one hero. Instead, you play as a movement of people whose well-being determines the success of your revolution. Tonight we riot is an unapologetically political socialist game about worker liberation in the face of a variety an overpowering capitalism, of overpowering capitalism. It's also quite a bit of fun to play, and that's from Variety. Um, we love this game, and we're just kind of promoing it because, like, we, we just want people to be into you know this kind of content. And if you're into yeah. our content, you're probably into theirs.
0: It's And, like, in terms of gameplay style, it's kind of like... So it's a, it's a side-scrolling beat-em-up, but it since you're controlling, like, a whole movement of people, you'll get, like, you know, a big crowd of liberated workers who will follow you around and kind of follow your actions, and you have, like, limited controls over what they do. So it's almost like if you fused, like, uh, Streets of Rage or any, like, a... The Simpsons arcade game, any side-scrolling beat em up with like Pikmin controls, where you're just like using the stick to direct this mob of people to where you want them, and also kind of like beating up uh, riot police and and caps yourself. It, it's uh, it's an interesting fusion of game gameplay mechanics. It's I mean it's it's simple. It's got a little bit of depth to it. It's a really nice combo.
1: We could talk, like, a whole 20-minute segment about how cool this game is. But um, if you'd actually like to see gameplay of it, uh, Means TV on their YouTube channel has a a playlist uh, featured by, like, Left Trigger, um, which is just, like, uh, some leftists playing video games and showcasing them. And their latest one is Tonight We Riot. So if you want to see actual gameplay of it, check that out. Um, You could also watch Thought Slime on um Twitch he did a stream like 2 weeks ago or so um yeah honestly where i feel he like he streamed tonight we riot
0: i feel like every lefty streamer is going to do a stream of this game probably
1: yeah most likely we've seen like a couple already it's really cool and you should check it out it's only $15 on um switch i don't know how much it is on pc Um, But considering how obscenely expensive the video game industry makes things, uh, $15 for our price point isn't super bad. But I'm not about to tell you how much money you should spend on things.
0: I mean, it's like a quarter of the price of any AAA industry video game, and it doesn't have the microtransactions. So it's... Pretty cheap compared to any modern video game, basically.
1: So yeah, we just wanted to promo that and promo Means TV because uh, we're really excited for any kind of uh, left media being portrayed, obviously. And then I guess the other shout-outs that we have are really just for us because, you know, that's something that we do too. Uh, self-promotion. <laughs> if you would like, you can follow us on Facebook, um, for on the clock TM. Uh, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are on Twitter at on the clock TM as well. Um, Podbean and SoundCloud and iTunes is where you can find this. If you're not listening to uh, to them on here already, because I mean, I don't know what else you would be listening to us on. <laughs> um, if you could leave us a review on iTunes, that would be really rad because like. Apparently that matters in the podcasting community. I don't know why, but it would be really cool to see what you think. (laughs) That's what iTunes tells me, at least, Um, whenever I upload a podcast episode.
0: Smash that subscribe button, ring the notification bell. Wait, this is the wrong platform for that.
1: Yeah, so if you could, it would really be actually kind of nice to have people talk to us on Twitter or Facebook or some sort of social media. So let us know what you want us to talk about, because otherwise we're just going to talk about a bunch of our nerd shit that we have already on the mind. So, like, my nerd shit's next. Next is Tom's nerd shit. So, like, you're just going to keep hearing this unless you tell us to talk about other things.
0: Yeah, honestly, like, if we see any suggestion, probably going to jump on it, because that will mean we have, like, one fan who gives us shit enough to actually... Want input on the show. So, like, be the first. Be the, be the first ever. Make history.
1: Be the change you want to see in the podcast world. Because it's what Gandhi yeah. says to do. So do what Gandhi says.
0: Do what, do what Gandhi says and subscribe to On The Clock. Gandhi, t- Gandhi said it, not me. You can't <laughs> be mad at me.
1: I will put links to Means TV and... Um, the left Sugar video for um, Tonight We Riot so that you can see the gameplay and everything. Um, But other than that, that's all we got for ads. So thanks. Next topic. Yeah. We're on to our next topic. Tom, you got that time?
0: Oh, you know it.
1: All right. Let me know when you're ready. Cool. All right. So I'll try to get this one done a little bit better slash faster than the previous one. Um,
0: I'm never gonna live this down. Or at down. least my first
1: one. This topic is going to be on a book that I read. I know I'm such a nerd. <laughs> I read this book a couple months ago and I've been wanting to do I don't know if I've been wanting to do uh, like a talk about it a YouTube video or like a video essay or something on it but I just wanted to talk about it. Um the book is called *Savage Appetites* by Rachel Monroe, and it is a a really good um, kind of like think piece on women within the crime narrative, um, specifically the the consumption of crime media and their role within elements of of crime or within elements of mm, like criminology, I would say. Um, It's split into different parts, uh, those being uh, the victim, detective, defender, and um, the killer. I I really like the way that she splits these parts up and discusses um, a couple different stories um, and a couple different research topics um, depending on The narrative that you're working with. So, like, we have initially the detective as the first subject, and for that subject, we are following the the mother of forensic science, Francis Glessner Lee. Um, She's a a wealthy a wealthy woman who was not allowed to go to school at the time. It was like the early 1900s, and she was interested in criminology, um, but she had to just be like a like a wealthy woman and just kind of hang out. But she came up with these nutshells, um, which is it's a weird thing to talk about. I guess it's just like the like little dollhouse setups of crime scenes. And she would um, work with police officers and detectives. She worked with Harvard Institute of Criminology and uh, legal medicine, and she basically started. the the idea of conceptualizing cases based off of forensic science. Um, So it kind of talks about her in that sense. So it's just to kind of give you an idea of like how the narrative follows one woman and then kind of drifts into the genre of like forensic science in this case and women's role in it in general. The whole kind of theme of this book is discussing why women are so fascinated with crime, which is just it's really fascinating to me. Like, I, I, I kind of, I'm really interested in um, the phenomena of like serial killers and uh crime history. I watch Murder ID quite a lot, um, or at least I used to when we have like cable television. I just, I like watching true crime stuff and um. It's just it's interesting to hear somebody talk about why women, particularly, are invested in this kind of like information. Like a quote from the book says, uh, "Television executives and writers, forensic scientists and activists and exonerees all agree: true crime is a genre that overwhelmingly appeals to women." women aren't just passively consuming these stories, they're also participating in them. Start reading through one of the many online sleuthing forums where amateurs speculate about unsolved crimes and sometimes solve them, and you'll find that most of the posters are women. More than 7 in 10 students of forensic science, one of the fastest-growing college majors, are women. And basically, Monroe talks about How she went to CrimeCon, which is like a convention (laughs) for... Wait, what? (laughs) I'm not even kidding. CrimeCon is a convention for people who are interested in crime TV and crime media and crime novels.
0: I just imagine like a bunch of like old-timey burglars with striped shirts and masks and sacks with dollar signs on them.
1: There's uh, obviously a lot of buzz around this. Dr. Oz had a segment at CrimeCon a couple years back. He had uh, True Crime Tuesdays as part of his thing. And he um, had a spot on CrimeCon talking about 11 signs you might be dealing with a psychopath. Uh, this guy. So, you know, that's a thing. <laughs> that happens.
0: That sounds nuts, though. Um, Why haven't there's I ever also, heard of this? I feel like this is a thing we should go to together.
1: I'm trying to think of where it was. I feel like it's in... Um, Opryland. Yeah, Opryland, which is in Nashville. So it's in the South. Um, but yeah, she was talking about like an exhibition hall and how there's a, a specific segment that's got, like, what's your motive? And people covering it with, like, post it for their, like, reasons for coming to CrimeCon. Like, this is a real thing, and I actually would like to go to this. That sounds and really cute. <laughs> it's, it's, <yeah. laughs> it's, it's extremely wild. There are people... Who are like wearing shirts saying DNA or it didn't happen or something <laughs> like that. It's crazy. It's just, it's a wild time, I'm sure. Um, but just like the way that she's describing these events and how commercialized um, these, these elements of crime are. And how they pejoratively are consumed by women and women's fascination with it. And she talks about the reasoning behind it. And through each of these different subsections of the killer, the defender, the detective, the victim, you kind of understand these different reasonings behind women's fascination with crime specifically, and their place within this, this culture. Like if you were talking about uh, Lee, Glessner Lee, who basically was the format for forensic science in, in its time she she came up with stu- she came up with studying crime scenes not based off of human investigation but based off of the details within the crime scene based off of blood samples and like recreating the crime scene and you know figuring out how different angles uh worked within like stabbing and like blood splatters it was just it was a a way of understanding a crime scene that people people hadn't originally been working with at the time time. they worked with it through human interaction and interrogation which led to a lot of human error so she was like the format of understanding the non-human side of things sadly she she was a huge donor to the harvard study for this but they kind of just like denoted her as this this crazy old lady by the time she was old and like this was all she worked towards they kind of just cast her out and they're like you can just give us your money but we're not we're not really taking your input anymore and now the smithsonian has been showcasing a lot of her nutshells a lot of her like diorama-esque crime scenes and like people are going in and studying them and like trying to see if they can figure out the crime. It it's really cool if you can look it up online. Um, like Lesnar Lee's, uh, nutshells at the Smithsonian. They're really cool to yeah. look at, or maybe that's just me.
0: <laughs> maybe so. Like but just there's to see a lot how of, she
1: was kind of pushed out.
0: Sorry, there's a lot of museums that are giving like digital tours. I wonder if the the Smithsonian is one of those.
1: I don't know, but uh, yeah. I think um, it's just it's very interesting to see like nowadays, a majority of the people who are going into that degree are women. The way that she kind of depicts it, Monroe depicts it is like how um, Glesner was like in a smaller role in her life. Like she felt like she was just so closed off um, and put into this 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 womanly role of just staying in the household. And being just like a married rich person, she created these nutshells as like analyzing like the smaller structure of things and keeping this kind of this this large effect into a smaller case, which kind of mirrored herself. If you go into the victim section, it talks about Sharon Tate and uh, Charles Manson murders and the Manson girls. It talks about how when Sharon Tate died, everyone was a victim of that basically, is what um, she found out. Like, not always is the victim just the person who's been murdered, but the family, the people um, who cared about this person how their lives are affected thereafter. And, like, the women within that role and just understanding how Sharon Tate was personified after that and even before that. So it's just, like, a very interesting story. And I, I really like how you come to understand how women appreciate crime and how it can potentially be dangerous. Um, like when you go into the killer section, how um, relationships formed over the internet, um, talking conspiratorially about like racial and anti-Semitic sentiment leading to shootings. Um, so just like a warning there, if you are not interested in um, that kind of topic, it gets pretty hard at the end um i know it took me a bit to be able to read it just because of the subject matter but it's it's still a very interesting story they also have uh the defender segment which talks about the um about the little rock three and the satanic panic of the 90s and they talk about uh damien Eccles and how he was wrongfully convicted of murder based off of the fact that he was a a Wiccan who dressed differently, um, in West Virginia, like in a small town of West Virginia. So, and it's talking about like the relationship he had with this woman while he was in prison and how she basically fought and advocated for his release and the public defender who also worked to advocate for his release and how, when you go into a courtroom as a public defender and you're a woman, everything is based off your appearance you have to play into those gender roles because that's how you're being portrayed. And if you think about the women throughout like criminal history working as public defenders, how are they personified in articles, in any news, any history? Like you you hear them depicted based off of their looks, based off of their demeanor. Are they too hard and strict? Are they too light in their sentencing? Like a lot of what they're seen as is based off of their physical demeanor which i think is just an interesting and very true statement to make and i mean a lot of this you can already kind of tell and you can already kind of understand just based off of what you know about feminism and what you know about the society and the patriarchy that we live under um so some of it's not even like really groundbreaking and i think that would be one of like the major flaws that i have with the book is that it's not it's not like groundbreaking material on the, the element of patriarchy in our society. But just to kind of get it in this sort of culture and understanding it from these different viewpoints, I think is really interesting. I'm just talking at Tom. He has not read this <laughs> book.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I remember a few things because, you know, you did tell me a lot about it on like car trips and stuff before the the current pandemic times Uh, i remember this this guy this wiccan guy who got framed for this this killing and yeah folks she's not kidding about the dark material in the book it's it gets pretty dark
1: yeah it gets pretty bad um the the last segment which is the killer which does bring up like the school shootings and everything that's really hard to read i don't like guns and i don't I mean, I don't think anybody likes school shootings, but I'm just, I'm not an advocate for any kind of violence within that. So, getting to that part really messed with me. And, I mean, she talks about it, like, Monroe researches this stuff. And she went through um, the conversations between these two teenagers who were discussing, you know, school shootings and discussing um, bringing guns over the plane how they were going to do this and she's just like reading this she's like I had to take a step back and like even going into like my bank or whatever I was thinking about all the different ways that somebody could potentially shoot up the place or I was in my library and thinking about like how somebody could come in bring in a gun and just like potentially have a a shooting here and she's just like it just like it sticks with you after hearing this so yeah when i say like warning there i do mean warning
0: i wonder if this plays into like and i don't like i'm just an ignoramus who hasn't read the book so if she discusses this you know tell me that i'm putting my foot in my mouth but like that maybe this is why (laughs) um women are so disproportionately represented as fans of true crime because like they are already in that position where they are more vulnerable in a lot of situations.
1: Yeah, she definitely, she talks about that at the beginning. She talks about the different reasoning in the first portion, um, kind of like the introduction of it, about like the, the reasons, the potential reasons for why we are within this media, why we want this media. And it was like, it, it I'll just read what she said here. So basically, she says, sometimes women's attract- attraction to c- true crime is dismissed as trashy and voyeuristic because women are vapid. Or sometimes it's unquestioningly celebrated as feminist because if women like something, then it must be feminist. Uh, and some argue that women read about serial killers to avoid becoming victims. This is the most flattering theory. And also, it seemed to me, the most incomplete. By presuming that women's dark thoughts were merely pragmatic, those thoughts are drained of their menace. True crime wasn't something we women at CrimeCon were consuming begrudgingly for our own good. We found pleasure in these bleak accounts of kidnappings and assaults and torture chambers. And you could tell by how often we fell back on the language of appetite, of binging, of obsession... A different, more alarming hypothesis was the one I tended to prefer. Perhaps we liked creepy stories because something creepy was in us. And um, that part really resonates with me because I love horror. I love a lot of creepy elements of things. And I think it's this other topic that, um, you know... People get into ah,
0: that's time um, unfortunately
1: that is time but you know at least I left it at that uh savage appetites by Rachel Monroe uh check it out if you can
0: that was really good I didn't even plan that like the listeners won't believe it but I did not know you had a quote ready when I asked if if she said that
1: oh baby you know I always got quotes ready I annotate literally everything
0: uh, yeah I mean that's true she she looks at, like, old school books of mine and it's like, where's all the annotations?
1: I love my annotations.
0: The only time I ever annotated was when I was required to and I just made up stuff to write in the margins.
1: <laughs> That's fine. Sometimes I did that, too. I used to, like, I have this one book where I would just, like, every time there was some sort of twist or if there was a character I wouldn't like, I was just like, what? And I just wrote <laughs> what into the margins of the book. Oh, man. It's a good book. It had a lot of twists.
0: <laughs> so, yeah, Savage Appetites, that's like, it's the detective, the victim, the defender, and the killer. It's the four chapters. Yeah. That sounds like what would make great classes in an, a tabletop RPG to me.
1: Oh my god. It's
0: segue time, baby.
1: It's segway time.
0: It's segue time. So, next topic... It's 20 minutes, going to start now. So, Let's do it. about a year ago, uh, Meg and I started going to a local D&D group not far from our workplace, which is, I think for her, probably the first time. It was like the first experience you had with tabletop RPGs, right?
1: Yeah, the only other time that I'd experienced it was just like, I, I listened to podcasts, on it and um like so i just kind of like took in that kind of media but i never actually participated in it
0: yeah and it was the first kind of regular sessions that i had been able to go to since i guess high school i i had a group with friends that was pretty short-lived but yeah we got into playing dnd on the reg like the nerdy nerdy nerds that we are and uh i, I got eventually got to thinking about like Hey, I could do this. Like, I ran a couple sessions as a dungeon master. We got the starter set for like close family friends when we were all out celebrating, I think last fall, right?
1: Yeah, probably around last fall. I don't know. We were drunk.
0: <laughs> yeah. We were we were we all got like absolutely smashed, and I ran a ramshackle D&D couple sessions as best as I could muster.
1: Which is just wonderful. You don't know his sister, but she gets like party crazy, and her playing D and D, wasted, is just the funniest and greatest thing ever. I love it. It was
0: great. Like, like if, if if it's something that everything's on board with, I would absolutely re- recommend the experience of just doing the tabletop role playing while just fucking blast it out of your mind. It's great. Um, but yeah. Besides, it's fun. Yeah. I also eventually, for one of our other groups that we joined, um, I ran a Monster of the Week campaign. We were in, inspired to do this by one of our favorite podcasts who did a campaign playing this game, um, which was eye-opening. So, Monster of the Week runs on a system called Powered by the Apocalypse, which it's very much it's a very differently designed RPG. Um, it's a lot more narrative focus uh with all the the dice rolling that you have to do for like combat and interaction uh well like the social interaction aspect is a lot more fleshed out than it is in D &D, and the combat is a lot less fleshed out uh and as i go kind of i like more yeah as i go kind of deeper down this this rabbit hole i've been reading up a lot on like tabletop RPG game design and where D&D fails and where what it does well and I've had these thoughts on my brain for like a week or two and I'm just gonna ramble on about it now for a bit so
1: (laughs) (laughs) which is basically like when he rambles to me about it usually which I have no problem with so join the fun
0: yeah I hope it's cute to her uh, I also hope it's, I guess, <laughs> not cute but entertaining to the listeners.
1: I mean, you can find it cute. I don't mind.
0: D and D is at this weird position at like the top of the pile uh, in terms of tabletop RPGs. Like when you think of it, tabletop RPGs, if you know what those are, you probably think of D and D. Almost everyone's first experience with it is either uh, one edition of D and D or. Pathfinder, which is basically just a bootlegged uh, 3.5 edition D&D. There's a lot of things it does well, but because it has this kind of position, I think they they spin it as almost... like The way Wizards of the Coast would have it is that they want you to think they're the only RPG that you need. They they've spin D&D as being able to do everything, and I wonder if... Maybe, like, the the creative leads feel pressured to do that because of their position at, like, this kind of top of the pile. But it's really not 100% true. Like, D&D, it's focused on a specific kind of experience when you look at the wider variety of tabletop RPGs that are, like, in the indie community that get made, like, uh, powered by the apocalypse in comparison. D&D has pages upon pages, chapters upon chapters of spells and rules for combat and skills to use to like safely traverse a dungeon. So D&D is like very much like it's a social game too. Like don't get me wrong, there's there's tools you can use to peacefully solve your problems, but like the way that they're written, there's a lot less chapter space that is given to socially engaging with NPCs than there is to fighting them. Like, the persuasion skill is a pretty good example. There's there's rules for like, oh, if you want to grapple your opponent, you can grab them and you make a strength contest. And then once a turn, they can try and get out of your grapple. But until then, they're restrained. Restraint is its own status effect. And you also can't take any actions while you're grappling someone because you, you would have to let go of them. But like, persuasion, what is... what is what. Persuasion is a skill that uses your charisma, so you talk at them, you persuade them to do something. How do you how do you know if an NPC is persuaded or not as the dungeon master? You don't, because there's no criteria at all for what is a successful persuasion rule. You have to make up the check, because there's no built-in system to the game that tells you when an NPC is going to be persuaded by a player's argument. This is in contrast to things like uh, deception versus insight, which is a little bit better defined in that a player who tries to lie to an NPC has to get past that NPC's insight role. Like it's a contest, basically. But even then, it's like, oh there's a contest, and if they win, they don't believe you, and if you win, they believe you. And it's just not very fleshed out, as opposed to like any attack spell in the game there's, they're like, okay, so they have to make a save, uh, and the save changes based on how good you are at magic, and if they make the save, maybe they take half damage, maybe they don't, it's got this area of effect, and even then, like, as a combat-focused RPG, it suffers a little bit from this, like, there's all this page space that is dedicated to combat mechanics, and there's no mention of, like, like, there's ranges of spells, there's, Oh, this hits in a 50-foot cube and it, it has a whole section of the game that is dedicated to showing you what, like how rays hit enemies in a line or how a sphere will hit enemies in, in that group. But there's also almost no mention of a grid that you're, you're, you should have minis on a grid to track all this.
1: I feel like D&D is so complicated and we're just we're explaining a lot of things that might be a little complicated for people who don't know D&D.
0: Yeah, it's it, yeah, this is this is going to sound like I'm speaking an alien language if you're not really familiar with tabletop games or RPG or D&D in general, but basically, yeah, it develops a whole lot of space to combat and not a lot of space to being a social game. But they claim that they're a social game or a combat game, whatever your party wants it to be, uh, which is the issue. And then there's Powered by the Apocalypse, which is much more focused on the social aspect. Like, there's multiple... Like, there's the whole basic moves that you can do. There's, like, six actions. And, like, only really two of them involve... Uh, fighting ability at all, and only one of those in- inherently involves violence. Uh, kick some ass is the basic yeah. I fight them role, and it's it's just one role, um, and most of the time you're actually discouraged from doing it in-game because it I- involves both characters doing damage to each other. So it's usually like an even exchange, even if you get like a, a quote-unquote average result.
1: And I mean the ma- the uh, mat like the amount of health that you have for this kind of um, RPG is is pretty low already. Like usually, if you're with um, like D and D, you can if you level up, you get more hit points, so you have more health. Um, which we yeah. don't really. I mean, we haven't leveled up in um, Monster of the Week, so I don't I don't really know how the mechanics for that work. But just knowing that, like, you don't have that many hit points. To start off with, it, it kind of like it kind of shows you that there's not a lot of value in going that route.
0: Yeah, and even just talking about like efficiency and game design, in D D every class has a different amount of health. And also if you have a different constitution modder, even different classes can have different amounts of health. Um in Powered by the Apocalypse, every character has seven health, and that's it. That's all the page space they devote yeah. to that.
1: It's crazy, and it's it's fun, and it's scary to work with. Um, if you want to see, like, I know we're talking about like the, the difference between the social and combat kind of elements of these two um, RPG types. If you if you want to kind of like listen to what this is like in in game action, um, if you listen to the Adventure Zone, which is like one of our favorite podcasts, and
0: yeah, it's our favorite. We don't have to qualify that. Yeah,
1: it's. It is. It is our favorite podcast. Um, they actually do two different arcs already. They're already on their third one right now, um, where they do um, a Power by the Apocalypse and D and D level arcs. So they do two different gaming styles: Balance, which is their D and D, and then they do Amnesty, which is their Power by the Apocalypse. And just from a storytelling perspective, the way that they do it, because it is like a funny, like story that they're telling throughout the whole thing. Like, just just the way that they tell it, you can see how different the, the game yeah. elements are into how they're weaving their story.
0: And you can see that, like, since Powered by the Apocalypse is based on... It's fluffier, so if you're not familiar with the parlance, crunch is, like, hard numbers and rules, and fluff is uh social elements and improv powered by the apocalypse is a much fluffier system, which is like a good thing, especially for their story driven podcast, because the Amnesty arc is probably the best content that they produce on that podcast.
1: Yeah, it's it's so fucking good. I love that arc so much. And I don't know how Griffin McElroy does it, but like the voices and the music that is in all of these stories are just absolutely wonderful oh my god i love it so much
0: yeah but um it's it's a much fluffier system which i've i've been like waxing lyrically about it but here's the weird thing i don't even like it (laughs) it's it's really not the kind (laughs) of game that i want to run as a dm because my like just the, the way i run it is I prefer things to have like hard rules and consequences and I'm not great at improving on the fly. I tend to over-prepare, so I tend to prefer crunchier rule sets and I actually found myself house-ruling our Monster of the Week campaign just to give it more of a structure at certain bits, especially at like parts that did involve combat because the game still does involve combat and that is like a hard requirement. Um, in Monster of the Week. Maybe not in other Power by the Apocalypse games. I haven't played them. Uh, It got me thinking, like, I started to kind of design my own games in the off time since I'm not DMing Monster of the Week right now. I started thinking of kind of my own. How could I run the games? Like, how could I make D&D 5e a more strategically based... like, it's already a dungeon crawler But 5e simplifies a lot of um, the—it sounds very complicated. D&D 3.5 is the most bloated, overcomplicated mess that probably any game designer has ever seen. 5e simplifies it a great deal. And I I would actually argue that the reason D&D is seeing a little bit of a renaissance now is that 5e is so much more friendly to beginners than previous editions were for all of its issues, even in the introducing new players department. So I came to be thinking, like, how can I make this more viable as a, as a tactical combat-focused game if I was going to DM that? And I began to think about um, what kinds of different uh, experiences I could deliver as a DM. And I've, I've actually started... I'm in the very early stages, so don't expect anything yet. But I have been kind of writing my own... Uh, tabletop gaming systems for a few things that I don't think D&D is really able to give. So the first one I started working on, which I think it was experienced a while ago, uh, we went to see Godzilla King of the Monsters in theaters, which was the first kaiju movie that I had ever watched with Meg. And it was like, people panned this movie. People... This movie got very bad critical reception, but for me, this was, like, a fucking religious experience. It was...
1: <laughs> it was it was really good for monster content, honestly. For, like, kaiju content, it was 10 out of 10. Just great, great kaiju. Uh, for people content, it was not that great. The writing was, like, awful, but, like... Honestly, if I go to a movie to see Godzilla, I'm going to only care about Godzilla because I love him.
0: Yeah. I Like, no one gives a shit about the human characters. I think in almost any Godzilla movie except, like, the first one, which we did watch after that. I, I binged a bunch of monster movies. And now I want to design, like, a kind of a tabletop role-playing system where you can play that like kind of kaiju experience which so initially i based it off of the d20 system which is basically dnd 3.5 that horrible bloated awful system um that i love uh, <laughs> but like i'm finding <laughs> more and more than it's that it's not really a great idea and the more i am like looking up at this kind of tabletop rpg game design community that exists on the internet that i've been kind of like spying on just lurking in the background they talk about this like design with intent right like you shouldn't be devoting page space to something that you don't want to be a key part of the experience so like initially when i was making this i want oh i was like oh i want players to be able to do everything like i'm falling pretty the same mistakes that D was like i want people to be able to have like a human character who is like an advocate for the monsters or, like, a scientist who can help them. And more and more I'm thinking that that's just fucking dumb. Like, no one likes the human characters in Kaiju movies. <laughs> why would? Why should I include rules for them? I don't know. I'm not done thinking about it, but, like, I'm thinking probably I'll just cut them out entirely.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about, like, the different ways that you, you've wanted to, like, work with this. And kind of, like, figuring out how narratively that would work. And like, that's all I offer advice on is like my kaiju knowledge, which is just like moderately better than Tom's. And like you're learning already more about it. It's just more of like, yeah. I, I I know the the story elements of a monster movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, see now, I can't believe we already talked about this for twenty minutes. There's the timer. It doesn't feel like any time has gone by. It's like, I want to keep talking about this. Ah. Anyway, um, I'm, I'm working on uh, Kaiju Jitsu, and I'm also going to be working on a very crunchy, combat-focused, uh, Dragon Ball Z-inspired tabletop RPG. Uh, maybe a wrestling one in the future so that's me he has
1: so many in mind oh my god
0: i want to do all of the rpgs i'm very excited i'll probably burn out but i might finish one of them so that's it that's okay that's it that's the fourth topic it's done i'm done talking about nerds (laughs) nerds and dice
1: this is a very nerdy episode for us i know we get pretty nerdy but like i was talking about like crime books and like article topics and Tom's talking about his RPGs and Wisconsin knowledge. So, like, we get, we're getting way too nerdy. Y'all better come up with some topics for us to discuss so that we don't just, like, divulge into absolute <laughs> geekdom.
0: Yeah, we're going to... Fuck, when we bring up, like, Star Wars or Star Trek, that's when we know we're going to be too far gone. Well, I'm going to give you two and a half minutes because the lightning round that I have for you this week, I want you to talk about... What are our favorite and least favorite streaming services that we're going to be cutting and subscribing to? All right, three, two, one. Subscription streaming services. This is probably the most niche lightning round yet. Meg, give me your top three and your bottom three.
1: <laughs> okay, so top three. Um, I mean, one of them that we've been, we've been really into lately or I've been really into lately is Twitch because like, I used to watch a lot of gaming streamers a lot on YouTube, um, and now and I like a lot of art videos a lot. I love watching people do art content as well, and now I just watch the people I watch on YouTube, but when they Twitch stream, so that's one. Um, I watch YouTube a lot. That's one stream, uh, but it's not streaming. It's not nah. these aren't like ones I They're have to pay for. Damn it uh i mean patreon i like patreon because i like supporting creators um who don't really get income elsewhere i guess uh, that so that's one that's um, the most like
0: leftist option you could have picked probably <laughs> oh wait is means tv yeah, subscription well, also means tv uh there we go we worked in the shout out again
1: oh yeah means tv is another one and uh and uh, that was another one that i pay for i don't like paying for things tom uh I guess Netflix, Netflix uh, plus. or or Funimation. I like Funimation because we've been watching Dragon Ball Z and I haven't learned anything about Dragon Ball Z until now. So uh, don't come at me. <laughs> but like, yeah, uh, least least favorite is Hulu because they're garbage and they make you pay extra for double subscriptions. And that's yeah, just what the fuck? garbage.
0: Hulu live TV. What is this bullshit? Fuck. We're not. It's just cable. We cut cable with subs- with the streaming services. That's the point.
1: Yeah. Yeah uh wwe because they cut people and they're awful in general and we've talked about this last week and then third one is gonna have to be amazon which amazon prime being that case i can't really cut it because my family uses my amazon prime so i don't want to cut them off sneak into their bank account
0: we're cutting it
1: i think i pay for amazon Prime. wait what (laughs) but either way
0: Ah.
1: yeah i pay for amazon prime for my family i'm pretty sure Either way, Jeff Bezos runs it, and I don't like him, so eh.
0: All right, that's time. Damn, that's the first time I think we've actually, like, that conclusively did a lightning round.
1: I tried really hard to be concise. You gave me a good topic to just, like, actually think about. I, I watch a lot of shit on free content, and I don't <laughs> want to have to pay for things, ever. Paying for things is blah.
0: I agree. It's blah. That's why this podcast is free to your earholes. Um, every week, except when it's not. Uh, every week. So <laughs> that's been on the clock. Have a great week or two weeks, depending on how it. we feel. <laughs>
1: Stop! No, it's going to be... I swear that we're going to get better about the schedule. Like, we, we've done one misstep so far out of four episodes. We're a quarter of the way down.
0: <laughs> 75% but success like, rate isn't that bad.
1: Yeah, we're trying our best here. It's, it's quarantine. I'm working on some career pro- progress uh so we're just we're going through some motions right now please forgive us
0: yep and with that that's our farewell please forgive us uh see you next please week
1: forgive us bye bye